Hello, welcome back to Franklin Covey's newest podcast, C-Suite Conversations with Scott Miller. That's me. I'm your host each week. You may recognize me or hear my, recognize my voice from being the host of Franklin Covey's other podcast on Leadership with Scott Miller, now the world's largest weekly leadership podcast. And as I've mentioned in previous interviews, we found that the most downloaded episodes of on leadership. We're not always the famous best-selling author or the Pulitzer Prize winning luminary or the Emmy Award winning actor or actress. They often were people like you and I, entrepreneurs that were both intrapreneurs that had built a career and a path to the C-suite. And today we have another interview with Tony Bates. He is the CEO of Genesis. You may know him as um, a technology innovator. He has worked with some amazing brands, including Cisco, GoPro, Skype, and others. He is on the board of numerous technology companies. He's also very passionate about the topic of empathy, empathy and leadership and culture as an author on that topic. Tony, welcome to C-Suite Conversations. Thank you, Scott. It's great to be here. I'm really excited for the conversation. Great to have you, Tony. As we like to do with many of our guests, would you take a few minutes and sort of recreate your professional path? What brought you to some of these iconic brands like GoPro and Cisco and Skype and Microsoft and others and talk a bit about now what you're doing at Genesis. Yeah, for sure. I mean, my, I would say my journey is uh, a little different to some. Um, I started off in the UK. I'm, I'm originally born in the UK. Uh, was really a very mediocre student in school, kind of just barely got through. Loved kind of the idea of engineering and mechanical engineering and ended up uh, at a place called South Bank University and really once I got into the course, didn't like it at all. But what I did like was the use of computers and I'd never used a computer before. I grew up in a pretty um, humble kind of uh, beginning, didn't, couldn't afford a computer. Uh, and I found myself spending a lot of time in the computer room, become sort of enamored with uh, the capabilities of what it could do. And by the way, for your listeners, this is back in the days of punch cards and tapes. So uh, very different to today. Um, and I decided uh, at the end of that year that I'd rather get some work experience, some practical work experience. And I applied for a job at the University of London at the computer center to be a computer operator. Um, and the important part of the story was uh, I got that job, but as I was walking out, the supervisor said, you know, we also need a network operator role. And I'd never heard of this idea of a network operator. I just thought he loaded cards and tapes into a computer. To cut a long story short, I went into this machine room, different machine room, and I just sort of fell in love with this room. It had all these flashing lights and just felt like what I thought computers really were going to be instead of these big refrigerators. And so um, I ended up taking this role and just became completely enamored and ensconced in early days of internet infrastructure uh, and was very fortunate to have an incredible mentor and a boss who basically believed in me and we ran all these different projects. And so we ran the project that connected the ARPANET to the UK academic network. Mm. And through that, I got very, very involved, uh, self-taught myself programming, the C language, uh, and got really involved in the standards. And basically I knew that I wanted to come to America. That was where things were happening. And this is before the commercialization of the internet. So without giving you the full resume, I'll just fast forward I landed a job in the US where I worked for the MCI telecommunications company. And that company was really at the forefront of building the biggest, baddest network at the time. They had won the contract to move the National Science Foundation network over. 
Um, so here I am, no formal training, no business training, running a hundred million dollar budget for the backbone engineering project and working with this company called Cisco, who basically were producing these enterprise, these university campus routers. And I realized at that moment that these things weren't anywhere big enough for what we were going to need um, for the future of the internet. We were starting to just commercialize. There were like MTV.com had just turned up, Netscape.com, we turned those connections up. And so I got a little bit frustrated with the a lack of scale and capabilities. And so in a meeting one day with the CTO of Cisco, I was sort of venting and saying, you, you don't get it. It needs to be this much bigger. And he said, well, if that's the case, why don't you come and help us build it? So I was very lucky to work at Cisco for almost 14 and a half years and really built most of my leadership, general management skills um, through that journey. Very, very fortunate to work for John Chambers for many years who taught me so many things that we could talk about on this on this pod today. Um, and then took me to the journey to a point where I sort of, you know, I think it's time to flex as a CEO, all the learnings. I was running a very, very large business at the time. Fortunately, got a call one day and got the opportunity to be the CEO of Skype. Skype had been uh, acquired by eBay, it spun out. Um, before I knew it, we got a, a offer from Microsoft. I ended up at Microsoft, did some time there. Uh, had a passion for both large-scale enterprise and consumer, um, and that took me to GoPro. I really wanted to uh, tie my hand at, cons at consumer hardware. I was the president of that. We took it public and now led me to Genesis. And the real story of why I was so excited about Genesis and perhaps what makes my career a little unique for every the listeners is I've been fortunate to be on sort of every side of the business model, hardware, software, enterprise, consumer, uh, service provider. So I've seen many, many different models. And what I saw when I came to Genesis is whilst we're a B2B company, what we're really trying to do is create incredible experiences for our customers to deliver to their customers. And that fusing of spending time with the consumer products and really thinking about people in the equation of the design is really what I've been working on um, at Genesis. So basically, you've been slacking the last 30 years, haven't you? It's a remarkable journey. I mean, literally, listening to you talk about it, I'm going to come back to John Chambers at Cisco, an iconic CEO, you know, in a time of, um, you know, really the digital revolution. Uh, you were the CEO of Skype about a dozen years ago, and I'd like to have you opine on how Zoom has performed during the pandemic. I'm sure there are some great lessons for every you know, early stage entrepreneur, every, you know, mid to large size divisional CEO or president, you know, I would say in many points of view, Zoom has kind of um, usurped that opportunity during the pandemic. And for, I think most of us, it's been a great service. What, what are the lessons you think are learned, perhaps both things to do and maybe things not to do on how Zoom, obviously a competitor of Skype, has uh, performed during the pandemic? Yeah, I mean, first, let me just say, uh, I have incredible respect for Eric Ewan, the CEO and founder. Eric actually worked uh, in one of the divisions that I ran. So I've known him at Cisco. He worked for WebEx. He was the main engineering leader at WebEx. And so enormous respect for him uh, in terms of what he's done. I mean, both in terms of product, uh, culture, uh, scale. So, um, you know, it's hard for me to really know the insides of, of what they did. But I think at the, at the root um, of kind of this video communications wave that we saw, um, the thing that was always very difficult was how do you make things simple and easy to use? Um, if you kind of go back 
in the days of Skype, my vision was you should be able to uh, use the product no matter what the endpoint device was, and it should act and work in the same way, whether you're on a, you know, a PC, uh, whether you're on a mobile device, whether you're on a, a smart TV, whether you were using a set-top box as that enabler. And so what I think Zoom really, really did was took that to the next level in the conferencing arena, right? They made it simple to use, uh, easy to onboard, um, you know, basically everything just kind of worked. Now, one of the, the, the things to talk about is that technology, and hopefully we'll come back to this with what we're doing at Genesis, is technology moves on. So if I think about Skype and, uh, you know, the thing that made it great was it was really the PC era using PC resources to do something that had never been done before, which was to get a rich video communication service with messaging, um, you know, and, and voice, of course. But when the mobile wave happened, a lot of the technology they built had not really been optimized for mobile. Now, if you fast forward to Zoom, I think Zoom basically was able to capitalize on all of that technology, all of that transformation that happened from the, the pioneers, the Skypes, the WhatsApps, uh, the Microsofts um, um, from before. The second piece that's really phenomenal, of course, is with the pandemic and the huge move that, that we saw, and, and obviously uh, many of you saw with work from home, this springboarded the, the, the need for a simple, easy to use, rich communication service. Um, but I would say the one thing, and you know, I've talked a little bit to Eric about it, and he could obviously opine much better, is uh, the, the trick is that balance of scale, knowing that that kind of tidal wave of, of need and users was coming and keeping the innovation engine going. And it's something I think about as a leader all the time, which is you want to make sure that you're focusing on the platform, that you stay true to kind of the vision of the platform, the, the core aspects of it, um, and that's sort of your, you know, decision-making process on product decisions you might make. But at the same time, you can't stop innovating. The minute you stop innovating, you know, they add features all the time. Genesis add features all the time. The minute you stop adding value to your users, they will go somewhere else. And I think that's particularly true in the communication space because there are a lot of offerings. So, you know, um, hopefully that kind of touches on a little bit of the yeah. question. Uh, but, you know, if you can get Eric on the, on the pod all the better because he really is the one who lived and breathed through that journey. He is in the hopper. Uh, we'll talk about Genesis in just a few moments here. I want to pivot briefly though to a topic you're passionate about and have written a lot about and that's empathy. In fact, I believe you co-wrote an author with a mutual friend of ours, Ariana Huffington in Fortune, where I think you were quoted as saying something like, you know, well-being is not a perk. It really needs to be embedded into the workflow itself. Riff on that for a moment. Talk about the importance of well-being and why it shouldn't be seen as a nice to have, but as an imperative in every work culture. Yeah, I mean, maybe to step back, I think if you sort of look at the way most companies, you know, even if you went back five to 10 years, most companies ultimately optimized around business metrics, right? Efficiency and effectiveness, productivity. And there's all sorts of tools that have been developed to help you with this. Um, but there was very little focus other than maybe a kind of a mission statement and a quarterly get together that really focused on the well-being of your employees. Um, now, I think the pandemic really shone the light on this, right? Like everyone suddenly, all of us, myself included, had to change the way we work. We had to change the way we live. We had to change the way we learn. And frankly, even the way that we, you know, play, entertain, and 
And so um, it created a tremendous amount of stress for everyone. Uh, but what I noticed and the purpose of the book um, is that even in the space that we play, so Genesis is really provides experience orchestration software. So think about anytime you come through a digital channel, a voice channel, SMS, email into a, cu into a customer, we'll provide all of that infrastructure, all of that real-time touch points. And the same thing was true in our industry. It was like, how do you make a very efficient and effective product? How do I get you, Scott, in and out of a queue, right? How do I minimize your wait time? How do I kind of offload you as fast as, as, as possible? And what it was sort of missing at its root was how does it make you feel, right? So what I sort of noticed in, in, in our space first, which was every time I talked to a, a customer service agent or a head of customer support, and they explained a story of the best kind of experience their downstream customer had, it always had one key thing. It had that you had taken the time to listen understand and have history about the customer you're interfacing. Effectively, you had a more empathetic approach to that interaction. Even if it took longer, you got a better business outcome because they were more likely to come back. It created trust, it created loyalty, and it drove customer lifetime value. I think, and I think it's now been proven with data, and, and we did a lot of work, Ariana and I, on this, that the same exact thing is actually true for employee experience. And it looks very obvious now because of the pandemic, but pre the pandemic, it wasn't so obvious that we really needed to shift the way we think about the business. We need to move from business-centric metrics to human metrics. And I would put it to everyone on this pod that when you do that, innovation goes up, uh, attrition goes down, um, creativity goes up, collaboration is better, because ultimately all of us, myself included, they want to uh, feel heard. They want to feel understood. They want to feel like you can relate to them right, in, in a very human and authentic way. And so what the book really um, uh, outlines is really a new way of thinking, which is efficiency and effectiveness is great. Those metrics matter. You need to run those KPIs. But the force multiplier, both in terms of customer experience and employee experience, is empathy. Um, and as we were writing the book, there was a Harvard Business School study that came out and showed that folks, companies that really focused on their people uh, and the experience they delivered in a very human, authentic way, in an empathetic way, uh, had a greater revenue generation. So to me, at the root of all of this, yes, we had stresses. Yes, it was really important. And I think it's incredibly important for leaders to really engage their employees, listen to them and understand them. But I think it's more than that. It's a true business imperative and a game changer for businesses moving forward. Tony, so beautifully said, do you think the tech sector struggles more with developing empathy in their leaders and their leadership culture than perhaps other industries? Is it a common challenge? Do you think the opposite is true? Perhaps maybe is tech leading out in it because it's been such a force multiplier and they're beginning to realize that. Talk about that. I, I think um, I think it's across the board. I'll tell you, uh, I would go to CEO conferences five years ago and you'd never hear the word empathy. Yeah. All right. You'd hear a lot about efficiency. You'd hear about productivity. Uh, but across the board, across every sector, 
it's it's on the front um, of I think uh, everyone's mind. Now I think that, that where the tech sector has a great opportunity um, is that technology actually can play a real role in this. So empathy is of course about sort of understanding you know where you're coming from, not judging you, listening to you. But I think that there's something much broader happening, and, and we outline this in the book, which is there's sort of a framework of thinking that's very um, uh, enabling through technology. So the way we think about it, we call it the empathy in action framework. And it basically starts with listening and understanding. It's a data-centric way, getting lots of data signals. And that's what tech companies are really, really good at. Then once you, you've taken all that data, all that signal in, then you need to actually predict an outcome, right? Once you predict that outcome, you need to test whether that outcome gave you a better result in a continuous learning loop. And if you think about great platforms and technology, that's foundational how they're built. The greatest platforms are data centric. They use that data and they modify their development against that data. Now, the other piece of this, of course, is that there's a lot of talk in technology companies about design thinking. Now, at the root of design thinking is people first design. And so I actually think that both culturally and technologically, tech has an advantage, but it is a mindset shift, as I mentioned, because the old industrial complex, no matter which industry you came through, was very command and control. And I think in, in this world, you have to kind of enter your mind of that, right? Part of being empathetic is really making sure that people feel empowered, right? So once you sort of get through this and you explain where everyone's going, they're held. Now it's like, okay, let's act as one. We call it embrace empathy, fly in formation, go big. That's the three cultural pillars of Genesis. And that loop keeps building and building and building in our products, in our vision, in our strategy, in the way that we engage our customers. And so I, I would say that uh, tech is in neither in a uh, worse yeah. or better place, yeah. but the use of technology, I think, um, will play a big role in this. And again, it's not that empathy will be completely uh, emulated by AI. There's a lot of use of artificial intelligence that can inform the way that you think about the empathetic approach that you have within your company. Tony, you've had this iconic career, right? You've served on numerous boards, including YouTube and Sirius and GoPro, uh, eBay. Now you are the CEO and chairman of Genesis. Will you take some time and reorient our listeners and viewers to who is Genesis and what do they do and why are you so passionate about it at this point in your career? Yeah, Genesis is an incredible company. I, I am uh, a humble steward of an iconic company that was created 30 years ago. And Genesis was really born out of the idea of taking complex things in hardware and moving them to software. And so it was born out of the idea of how do you make it more simple to route a customer to an agent, right? And back, you know, think about 30 years ago, we were still talking about complex phone switches, almost like switchboard operators. Um, and now we fast forward, they were the early inventors of, of the interactive voice response system where you could talk to a system and it would help route you to the right agent or the right um, knowledge worker or the right you know, part of a, a, a company that you needed to get to. So if you fast forward, uh, Genesis really played in some of the largest and most important companies in the world. So just to frame it out for your audience, uh, we have about seven and a half thousand customers today. 
55 of the Fortune 100. Um, we serve as that front line, front door in terms of offering the software and the services. We don't uh, provide the call center agents. We really provide the innovation and the technology. We're in um, 100 plus companies, uh, countries, sorry. Uh, we have 60 offices around the world, close to $2 billion in revenue, um, growing very, very rapidly in our cloud product, uh, one of the fastest growing cloud products out there. But if you step back, the thing that is really important to understand is that we offer this technology, but it's almost the uh, most important interactions most of us have with a company, right? It's those real-time or near-real-time moments. And, you know, we've all had this experience. You call in to an 800 number or you're using an app and you're talking, you know, for the chat service. You either get a moment to delight the customer, to make them feel like they were heard, understood, or you blow it fundamentally, right? You don't make them feel good about the experience. Genesis probably has some, it's hard to measure because there's on-premise software and cloud from, uh, software, probably a hundred billion moments of real-time or near real-time interaction where we can enable for our customers to deliver a personalized, empathetic experience. And so the big mission for the company is to deliver empathetic, personalized experience to everyone on the planet, right? Enabled through our customers, enabled through our partners. And the way that we really think about that is orchestrating all of those touch points. So if you think about a large, uh, you know, well-known consumer company, uh, they will have a front door through retail. They'll have a genius bar-like, you know, service center. They'll have an 800 number. They'll have a website. They have a business chat. They'll have a commerce aspect um, to what they'll do. They have returns, right? Now, you interface with all of those potentially, but you really want that to be personalized for the experience that you're going to have, right? So if I'm coming through a digital channel, uh, I might want one experience when I want to escalate to talk to someone who has more knowledge about what I want to do. I want that done seamlessly for me without me having to go back in the system where they don't have all my information. And so we build these cloud services and they give you all this context and history. They plug into all the other major systems like the CRM system, the ERP system. And then we actually help predict the best way to engage you. And that's what we call experience orchestration. And so really what we're about is smart routing things, orchestrating the best possible way to serve our customers to their customers. Tony, let's pivot to our theme of this podcast, which is the C-suite. Let's talk about the path to the C-suite, of which you have been in for many decades and continue to hold at Genesis. Uh, if we believe this adage that every company is now a technology company, whether you're selling tulips or lingerie or cloud services, and every company is in the same business, they're in the people business, they're in the relationship business. Think about the skills, the competencies. If someone, let's just say they're a, a senior manager, they're a director, they're maybe, a, maybe they're a, an associate vice president, and they're looking to move into the C-suite, or perhaps they're in the C-suite and they're holding on for dear life. It's not everybody's goal to be in the C-suite, but assume for a moment that the talents are the same, what are some of the competencies in 2022? If someone's, whether they're a CIO or a CHRO or chief revenue officer, give us the top three or four competencies that someone needs to learn, relearn, or engage in to make themselves relevant in 2022 if we believe this adage that, in fact, 
every company is now a technology company. Yeah, so I'll give you a couple of frame, frames of reference. Firstly, I'll talk about what I look for in my leadership team and what I aspire for myself. And so I have a very simple framework. Um, and then we'll talk about some of the, I think, things, the nuances that really matter, especially in the C-suite. So first, I just want to be very clear, and I learned this from John Chambers, um, who I had the pleasure to work for for a long time. Number one is results do matter. The say-dos matter. If you sign up for something, you want to deliver on that. And you want to make sure that it's well understood the KPI that you're responsible for and how to get it done. So that's number one. Number two, I think that because every company now is a technology company and because technology is step changing very fast, you need and owe it to yourself to stay very current, even if it's in your functional lane, even if it's in your functional area. And so my second sort of... Um, thing I always think about is functional excellence, right? We all need to get better at what we do. Um, the way I think about it is that I know everyone's doing their best, but everyone can do better. I think about that for myself every day. It's not, I'm not that I come to work to, to not do my best, but I know that I can do better as a CEO. My skills need to continue to only adapt, but they need to um, grow, right? You know, and one thing that I would caution everyone who's sort of in this path, and I see it a lot, is people sometimes say, well, I can do that piece in my sleep. Can you give me another role? No one can do it in their sleep because the world is changing. And if you aren't changing with the world, you will get left behind. And imagine in technology, just to kind of contextualize it, every single day, there's a new piece of open source technology that solves a problem that companies used to use, you know, hundreds of people, if not thousands of people. So part of staying functionally excellent isn't just keeping up with the latest, it's taking advantage of all this technology. So that's sort of the second thing. The third thing is um, be very open to coaching. And it's sort of interesting if you think about it, being functional excellent means like hit the ground running where you don't need a lot of coaching, but the paradox is be really open to coaching and feedback and never personalize it. Um, and then the last piece, and I think this is really, really important, especially for, for individuals that are making their way to the C-suite um, and they're sort of moving from the individual role to the manager role to the scalable management role, is have a ruthless focus on organizational development. Um, and what do I mean by that? I don't mean reorging and re-optimizing. I mean knowing who your top people are, your high potential people, really developing them really making sure that you know your top five needle movers in, in your organization, you know the bottom five, what you're going to do about that, and constantly focused on that. And I found those four kind of base principles uh, really, really drive high performance, really, really drive what you're looking for in the C-suite. Now, I do want to say it's amazing how many times, though, you'll have someone who needs a lot of coaching and they're not open to it. And I think that's the last piece I want to talk to you to your question, and I've tried really hard and I'm a work in progress and I've made mistakes in this area is um, never get too caught up kind of in the next move, right? Always focus on learning in where you are and good things will happen. And I know your question was sort of like, what's the journey? And I, I know it's easy for me to say I'm a CEO, but my journey was never check a box in this area, get functionally great in another area. It was just continue to learn 
continue to believe at the highest level that sort of a meritocracy does exist if you deliver and you deliver on those four things I talked about. Um, so hopefully that helps. Then the other thing that I think is super important and this gets talked a lot about and it comes back to empathy, um, EQ, your emotional quotient is as if not more important the higher up you go than the IQ. Um, and I think why does why do I mean that? Because even though you move up and you have maybe more responsibility, more quote unquote power, the only way you really get things done, especially as the company scales, is your ability to collaborate. Right? It doesn't mean to say like, you know, you have to get on well with everyone. You can have different points of view, but you've got to understand what each person's coming from. And you never should fall into this idea of sort of judging someone else in what they do, right? When you've always got lots of work to do in your own garden, so to speak. Tony, is there a topic that you're sort of fixated on studying right now? Artificial intelligence or climate change or the next pandemic or hybrid work. Is there, is there something that you're learning about to disrupt your own thinking and be prepared for the future that you might suggest others uh, find interest in as well? Yeah, I think um, there's, I'd say there's a couple. Uh, number one is really the broad spectrum of the changing landscape of ESG. Um, and a big aspect is climate change. Another aspect is really governance. And the third aspect is really diversity, equity, and inclusion. And um, at Genesis, I'm really proud of the work we've, we've done. But we were coming from a place where we hadn't really put an effort in and if people have the time uh read our sustainability report our commitment to to net zero um the work we're doing with diversity equity inclusion i think it's really important and it's not important because our customers want to see it um or uh you know um uh, every company sort of has to have one of these sort of you know web pages or report i think it's really a sustainable long-term differentiator of why people want to come to your company and by the way, what I worry about just a little bit as a heads up on why this is very top of mind is um, it's not fixed either. It's continually changing. And so you have to continually adapt and understand what's going on. And I also worry about the fact that um, with all the things that are going on in the world right now, it can easily take a backseat. Yeah. I feel that a little bit potentially with climate change. So I, I'm you know, continuously studying that, continuously staying current in that area. And then in terms of like raw technology, um, the one that probably intrigues me the most right now um, is back in my wheelhouse, which is how can I emulate more and more aspects of an empathetic experience, both in the employee experience and in the customer experience, using technologies like AI, putting more sentiment, more understanding, more natural language processing, more um, potentially, you know, ways to interact uh, visually, you know, a lot of Empathy is born out of kind of visual cues. You know, if I say something that puts you a little bit on the back foot, I can adjust because I can see that in, in, in your body language. And so that whole area is still fairly new. And I think it really, really um, could be a game changer for all of us. And I think it could be a societal change as well, because ultimately, if you feel better when you come to work or you feel better when you interact with the business, I think it's going to lead to a better world. Let's end with what's next. Uh, to the extent you are a futurist, which I'm allowed to deem you that because it's my podcast, uh, what do you think is on the horizon that leaders should be interested in, 
prepared for. You addressed a little bit of that in the previous question, but what's kind of on the long, longer-term horizon that you think every leader, C-suite leader, should be acclimatizing to, preparing for, thinking about? Well, let me give you kind of two ways to think about it. And, and we do this very purposefully in the book. Um, I think every leader needs to reframe the way they think about running their company. Um, and so what do I mean by that? Like, I, I'll give you a, a very straight example. Um, inherently, we all know if you have great employee well-being, they feel great, um, they're better brand advocates for the company, they deliver better experiences, um, there's more innovation and so on. And yet, uh, most companies don't read out these metrics. They certainly don't read them out on an on a earnings call. And yet you can measure, you can measure CSAT, you can measure MPS. Um, we have a whole body of work at Genesis, which we call the experience index, which really adds empathy into that measurement. And yet no one's really kind of baking that into their business. And I will put it to you that I think there's tools available, there's capabilities, and that's a big wave of change that needs to happen. Um, particularly in a distributed workforce environment, which is not going away, particularly in, in the fact that you, there won't be HQ ways of um, communicating, even with your C-suite. I mean, I just tell you at Genesis, we don't have an HQ approach. My C-suite is completely distributed all over uh, the US um, and we do almost everything virtually. Yes, we come together once in a while, but that effectiveness and hearing that feedback. So that's one big bucket. And then the other thing sort of long-term in the futurist bucket, maybe to, to the, the root of your question is that it's sort of interesting if you think about it, that um, we haven't really had a new modality of, of working and living and interfacing in technology since the smartphone, right? Um, there's a lot of talk about the metaverse and AR and VR, um, but I think that that change will happen. There will become a moment where we'll have a new modality. I don't know what it is. I'm excited about some of the things that you see and, um, you know, in sort of the AR, VR world. But with that thing to really think about is less about the modality, but more about the way it will change the way we present ourselves, the way we think about our ownership in terms of our profile, the information we want to share, our privacy and our security. And in Web3, you start to see this idea. Uh, a lot of people talk about a sort of distributed um, control of your identity, right? You own that. You get to select who you serve it to. And so I think all companies, we're doing it, need to start really thinking about that. Because I think in the next wave, and I think it probably happens through a modality change like this, um, there'll be a very, very different way of presenting yourself. Scott, you may want to present yourself as an avatar sometimes. Maybe you want to be the, the, the human, Scott. Maybe you want to be a digital bot sometimes. Maybe you want to share some information with United Airlines and Airbnb, just as an example, because you really want them to coordinate you know, a better experience for you when you, when you land or, or with Avis to get the, the car there. But you don't want to share that with others. And so there's, that's where my mind is sort of going, that we've been kind of one-dimensional in our thinking. It's been incredible the way that the smartphone has enabled and all the applications and what it can do. But if we get a new modality, a new way of thinking, it could shift a lot of the fundamentals that a lot of this technology has been built on. 
Amazing journey and today, amazing conversation. Tony Bates, Chairman and CEO of Genesis with a remarkable history and some insights into what we all should be thinking and focusing on next. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Scott. It's a pleasure. And thanks for joining us on C-Suite Conversations. We'll, be, we'll see you back here next week for a new conversation from the C-Suite.